Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Rehumanize podcast. John Whitehead, who is the president of the Consistent Life Network. John, can you introduce yourself for the listeners? Certainly. Uh, As Herb said, my name is John. I am president of the Consistent Life Network, which is a coalition of over 200 groups dedicated to advancing the consistent life ethic. And I'm here to talk about the consistent life ethic uh, with these folks from Rehumanize. Can you explain what the consistent life ethic is? Sure. Consistent life ethic is the philosophy that all human life needs to be protected from conception to natural death, and in particular that the the human life needs to be protected against what are today the major socially approved forms of killing. Uh, These would be uh, forms of direct killing would be abortion, the death penalty, assisted suicide or euthanasia, and war. And we're also very much concerned about opposing Uh, threats to human life such as poverty and racism which don't always kill directly although they certainly can but also shorten people's lives diminish life and otherwise destroy it great how did you get involved in the consistent life ethic movement well i've I've gone through an interesting evolution my big issue is war war and peace issues and i uh, for a very long time was very much interested in international relations, in foreign policy, in what kind of course I wanted the United States to take in the world. And for a time, I was I was a real hawk for a time. I thought we needed a strong military. We need to be assertive. I thought the wars we fought in were, were generally good and just ones. And I supported the, originally in 2003, supported the Iraq War. Wow. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, and over time, it just became clear to me that how wrong I was. I mean, the Iraq war was a disaster. It never should have been fought. I had to re-examine my attitudes towards things like uh, World War II, the supposed good war. And I had to face things like the killing of civilians in, certainly at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but also in the, the firebombing of Japan and the firebombing of German cities, all the moral compromises involved. And I became increasingly concerned convinced, I should say, that I wanted to work for peace. I wanted to find alternatives to war and and uh, initially even just try to bring war more within restraint, something like what the tradition of just war theory dictates, uh, and, and, and to try to stop the kind of heedless destruction we saw. So I wanted to get involved in peace activism, but my big problem was all the major peace groups seemed to be pro-abortion, and I was pro-life. And I thought, well, how, how on earth can I be pro-peace or pursue peace activism without also promoting abortion. And I had been aware of alternative uh, pro-life groups for a long time, such as Democrats for Life or Feminists for Life, but I knew about consistent life as well. And I think my desire for a pro-life peace group led me to seek out consistent life. My very first activities with them, we we had a vigil and teach-in in January of 2011 to mark the 20th anniversary of the first Gulf War, and to remember all the the 20 years of of destruction that U.S. policy had brought about for the Iraqi people. And then a week later, I was back with Consistent Life for the March for Life. So it seemed like, wow, the the issues are just coming together here. 
and uh, got more involved in, uh, in Consistent Life the following year, became a regular volunteer and eventually board member, and have stayed involved in one form or other ever since. And uh, almost two years ago, I became president. So, so that's, the, that's the danger in getting involved <laughs> in an activist group. If you stick around long enough, you end up running things. Trust me. As someone who said that they would never <laughs> run a podcast, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> Excellent. So how long has the Consistent Life Network been around? In its current form, it's been around 30 years. It was founded in 1987, but its roots go back even further than that. It uh, started off at the very end of the 1970s, 1979. Now, since since we consider human life as beginning of conception, I do want to say I was around then. I was mm-hmm. in utero when the activities first started. Although my <laughs> you po- weren't really integral uh, to their forming. My, <laughs> uh, my, my political consciousness was not fully developed mm-hmm. at that time. So at that time, other people were, were doing the real activist work. In 1979, uh, concerns were very high about the nuclear issue, both nuclear weapons, but also nuclear power, because this was, of course, at the time of the Three Mile Island disaster. There were a lot of fears about, you know, accidents involving nuclear radiation. And an activist uh, named Julie Lesh, she's she's now known as Julianne Wiley, but uh, Julie Lesh at the time was very much involved in anti-nuclear activism. And she would give talks to women in their homes. Uh, She called them atomic Tupperware parties, where she would talk about the dangers of nuclear radiation. And in particular, she would talk about how nuclear radiation, whether from weapons or from accidents, could hurt children in the womb. And she remembered vividly that at one of these gatherings, a woman who was there listening to her had to ask a question. And she said, well, if it's wrong to unintentionally harm children in the womb with radiation, why is it okay to intentionally kill them in the room with curettes? And Julie didn't have an answer for that. She had not been involved in pro-life activism. She sort of said, well, that's not what I'm here to talk about. That's not what I'm about. But the question really stuck with her. And she had to ask herself that question and eventually came to the conclusion that we have to defend human life from both nuclear weapons and abortion. And that led her to eventually to create the group Pro-Lifers for Survival, which was dedicated to opposing uh, war, particularly nuclear war and abortion. That was part of the network of groups, the Blank for Survival. Yes, group. yes. Yeah, and and there's there's actually a story there if you, if I, if we have time for yeah, it. Yeah, we'll go for but, it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So the, the Mobilization for Survival was a coalition of groups that was dedicated to opposing nuclear weapons and nuclear power. And Julie wanted to get involved in that, her, she and like-minded people, and she wanted to get pro-life groups involved in it too. So this was in the days when you had to write away to an office and get a packet of materials. And she got this packet of materials from the mobilization, uh, which I think was headquartered in Washington, D.C. And there were some literature from pro-abortion groups that said specifically, well, because disasters like Three Mile Island hurt children in the womb, we have to make abortion available as a solution to this quote-unquote problem. And Julie was utterly appalled by this. She thought it makes no sense at all to say corporations are horrible for exposing children to radiation or perhaps toxic chemicals in the womb, but but it's the right and merciful thing to kill them with abortion. And she called the headquarters. She said, you know, this doesn't represent our thinking. I don't agree with this. I want to object to this being part of the, the mission. 
And the person took down her name and her information and said, well, that's great. You know, or, or said, you know, thank you for sharing your opinion. Said, and, and what, is, what is your organization again? And Julie said, we're pro-lifers for survival. And this and, was just Julie. Yeah, yeah, this is just Julie. <laughs> and she hung up the phone and she decided, okay, now I actually have to found this organization. Uh, and that was the, right, the origin of pro-lifers for survival. And some, some people in the MOBE, as it was known, in Mobilization for Survival, were supportive, thought, great, we want you in. Uh, the national director of the group was, in, was pretty positive about it. But some members of the MOBE did not want a, an anti-abortion pro-life group to be part of the, the coalition. Uh, the Boston chapter was very vocal in its opposition to pro-lifers for survival. They threatened to withdraw from the MOBE, uh, and they sent a letter criticizing it, saying something like, you know, everybody, all anti-abortion people are racist, sexist, classist, misogynistic reactionaries. And, uh, and we, we made, they made a t-shirt out of that one. It, was, it, was said, it said something like, just another racist, sexist, mm -hmm. classist, misogynistic reactionary for peace. Mm -hmm. uh, so they, they end, did, didn't end up in the mobilization for survival, but the group continued. And in 1987 added uh, opposition to the death penalty, opposition to poverty, opposition to euthanasia, to part of its mission. Uh, and then uh, that's, and then in 1993, this was at the time when Rodney King's beating by LAPD officers was very much in the public consciousness. And that brought uh, the evils of racism to the public mind. They added racism as the, the final threat to life the group was, was uh, opposed to or was dedicated to defending life against. And it was first known as the Seamless Garment Network, uh, after the whole concept of the seamless garment, which was uh, essentially the consistent life ethic, a different name for it. And members found over time that people didn't understand what that meant. Yeah, I am <laughs> part of the Consistent Life Network movement, and I don't fully, I know it has to do with the New Testament. Right. It's something about the robes Jesus wore. You're right. But I can't. I've never been fully able okay. to grasp it. Right. The, the, <laughs> and how it relates to abortion and war, I sure, think, is where sure, I get lost. Sure. Fair, okay. <laughs> but briefly, and and the I have heard the person who fir person who first used so yes, in the New Testament, the uh, after he was crucified, the uh, after Jesus was crucified, the uh, Roman soldiers who were standing guard at the crucifixion were dividing up his garments among them. And his garment was, it says, a seamless garment. It was woven together so it couldn't be divided up. Mm -hmm. And uh, that imagery was used by a woman named Eileen Egan, who was uh, involved in the founding of Catholic Relief Services, the Catholic Charity. She was debating with a conservative pro-lifer who didn't think being opposed to abortion meant being opposed to the death penalty or war. And Eileen brought up the su subject, the imagery of the seamless garment. The defense of life is a seamless garment. It can't be split apart. And that was that same imagery would later be brought um, adopted in the 1980s by Joseph Cardinal Bernadine, who was the Archbishop of Chicago and an advocate for the consistent life ethic. So it certainly has a long history, but as yeah. you say, it's not immediately apparent what it means to yeah. people. Yeah, and I think especially to secular people. Right, who, exactly, and it's it, it is yeah. religiously tinged, so it doesn't mm -hmm. have as as broad a uh, yeah. an appeal, a comprehensibility. And also, frankly, people thought we were somehow involved in the clothing industry. Yeah, we would the 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 organization would get 
mail meant for the International Ladies Garment Workers Union and yeah, things like that. Wow. So in 2002, it became the Consistent Life Network, which is more straightforward. And uh, and yeah, we've kept going ever since. So. Great. So what sort of activities and project is Consistent Life involved in now? Sure. Uh, our biggest focus is on education. We just want people to un- know about the Consistent Life Ethic and understand it. Uh, it. It's funny, at my the talk I was giving last night, somebody asked the question, how many people, if you did a poll, know what the Consistent Life Ethic is? And I don't have an exact figure, but I'm sure it's sadly low. So simply getting people to understand that this is an idea, this is a thing, and to try to understand the uh, understand the concept, that's a big part of what we do. So we have a weekly e-newsletter. Uh, we have a, we, uh, a blog that's updated every week uh, on these topics. Uh, we produce a lot of educational materials that are available for free download or can be ordered. And and we have a presence at conferences, events held by like-minded groups, or or sometimes even not so like-minded groups. So education is a big part of what we do. We particularly want to highlight the way life issues are connected, how one form of violence can feed into another. We're all aware of how racism and poverty feed into the death penalty, how ableism can feed into abortion or into to assisted suicide, uh, things of that nature. Now, I know you're working on a project targeting Planned Parenthood. Can right. you discuss that? Yeah. It's called the Grassroots Defunding Initiative, and the idea which is, it's inspired by peace movement tactics and specifically uh, Gandhi's notion that rather than just oppose oppression, you have to create alternative institutions, alternative systems to the oppressive ones. So we don't focus on getting the federal government to take money away from Planned Parenthood, which of course is a gigantic political battle as we all know, but to, cr- to promote and to some degree create alternatives to Planned Parenthood. So these would be uh, essentially organizations and institutions that provide the non-abortion related services that Planned Parenthood provides, whether they're community health centers, rural health clinics, or, or, or other kinds of, of uh, institutions. So for example, if a woman needs uh, a pap smear or a breast exam or an STI test, STI testing of course being a huge part of what Planned Parenthood does, that she can find an alternative, a community health center or some other organization that she can go to. And that serves two purposes. One, it takes customers and hence income away from Planned Parenthood. And second, it means that she never gets hooked into going to Planned Parenthood for health care needs. So if and when she should become pregnant, she's not going to go to Planned Parenthood and most likely be, be pushed towards abortion. And we have a website, uh, you can look it up at grassrootsdefunding.org, that is a, it's a database of information on community health centers within a ra- close radius, I believe five mile radius of Planned Parenthood. And, uh, and also information about areas where there aren't yet those kinds of alternatives. And that's a good project for activists to work on. Lobby members of Congress uh, try to build up alternatives. And you don't even have to be pro-life. I mean, anybody can appreciate the value of having a community health center in an area where there isn't one. So that's an initiative we're working on. And an initiative that I'm very much concerned with is raising awareness about the nuclear danger, because it's still with us 40 years after Pro-Lifers for Survival came around. Uh, I host, uh, organize a vigil outside the White House every quarter. I've been to it a couple times. Yes, and it's been very glad to have you, both of you there. And... uh, and trying to raise awareness about the nuclear danger. I would love to have folks in other cities 
uh, elsewhere on the East Coast, West Coast, across the country, have their own vigils outside City Hall, outside military bases. So that's something I want to build up. So those are some of the activities we've been involved in. Can you speak a little bit more about the nuclear danger? Because I don't think this is an issue that you know, it's, a, it's not a hot button issue. Right. I think in 2016, there was a little bit of talk of, do we want Trump to have the have the ability to push the button? But that was sort of rhetorical and no one actually took it seriously. Um, and I think that that is an ongoing problem where we don't consider it one of the, you know, it's not an issue to campaign on at right. this point. And I right. think that that is really scary yeah. when we look at the threat. No, I agree entirely. It's, we're... We're living through a tremendously dangerous time as far as uh, the threat of nuclear war, which is, is, I mean, the biggest threat to life there is. In, in its potential, it's even bigger than abortion. Uh, and uh, the danger has been increasing in recent years. So just, just to go over some of the ways the danger has been increasing in, uh, well, particularly in the last five years, but going back even further than that, uh, the relationship between the United States and Russia has plunged to abysmal levels. We're now at something approaching a new Cold War with Russia. Uh, and there are various flashpoints in Eastern Europe, places like Ukraine, or places in the Middle East, such as Syria, where the United States and Russia are on opposite sides of hot wars that could flare up into some larger uh, great power exchange. Which is another fear about Iran. Yes. Not only Iran getting nuclear weapons, but what that could mean for the U.S. and Russia's relationship. Right, right, because because U.S. and Russia are on opposite sides of that question as well. You mentioned Iran. Our relationship with Iran has got has become terrible mm-hmm. just, in, just in the past few years under yeah. the Trump administration, with the Trump administration pulling out of the, the joint agreement that was meant to keep Iran from getting nuclear weapons. And, of course, the Iranians have... have been happy to pursue uh, uranium enrichment and the logic that since the United States isn't honoring this agreement, why should we? There have been these incidents where uh, the Iranians you know, shot down an American drone and, and we apparently came within a few hours of bombing Iran. That's a huge danger. North Korea is a giant danger. Uh, with uh, We don't know where that's going to lead, but of course, this time, a couple of years ago, Trump was threatening to bring fire and fury down on the North Koreans who responded with their own saber rattling. And also what's, what's terrifying is the whole structure of international treaties that have been brought, built up over the years that have been meant to contain the nuclear danger is falling apart uh, in large part because of the United States. So in 2002, the, the United States withdrew from the anti-ballistic missile treaty, which it's complicated, but that was essentially to ensure stability in, uh, and prevent a nuclear arms race. The United States withdrew from that. Uh, the Trump administration has withdrawn from the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which banned a whole category of nuclear weapons, and that opens the door to a new arms race in, in that, as far as producing that type of nuclear weapon. And the, uh, the START treaty, the major nuclear weapons limiting treaty between the United States and Russia, which is uh, due for renewal in 2021, it's not at all clear that it's going to be renewed. The administration might choose not to renew it. It might fall into disuse. And if that happens, there will, for the first time in 50 years, be effectively no major nuclear arms control treaties. And the, the way is clear for a nuclear arms race, which may lead us who knows where. So the danger is, is huge right now, and it's not getting enough attention. And I, I think both 
I think both political parties and both ideological camps, liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats are to blame for that. I think that I think that the traditionally very hawkish strain in the Republican Party is part of the reason why there has been so much confrontation with other nations, whether big ones such as Russia and China or, or small ones such as Iran or smaller ones such as Iran and North Korea. And the, the dislike that people like John Bolton have for arms control treaties. I also frankly think that the Democrats, who I would hope, I would have hoped would have been stronger, I'm speaking out about this, if only because it it's it's very good fodder for criticizing the Republicans mm-hmm. and criticizing the Trump administration. And it is in the Democratic Party's platform. And 2016 was mm-hmm. working towards at least non-proliferation, I believe. There you go. Um, so it's something they campaign on and then in office <laughs> doesn't seem to be the case. Well, and I think part of the reason is that... Uh, Part of my theory is that I think there is this notion that Trump is vulnerable on the whole Russiagate question. There's this desire to paint him as sort of the tool of Vladimir Putin, this Russian stooge. But I don't, I don't see it. No. Uh, and but I think that because that's a useful political tool, Demo- many Democrats, not all, don't want to talk about all the dangerous things the Trump administration is doing that make war with Russia more likely. Uh, so it's it's a very, very bad situation. And anything we can do to raise awareness of the danger is, is very needed. So I want to go back to talking about the consistent life ethic sure. generally. Um, and something that I find as someone who is part of the movement sure. is that I face some backlash for mm-hmm. organizing this way. I think some of okay. our listeners might be mad that we just spent 10 minutes talking about <laughs> war when children are dying from abortion. Sure. And I think that uh, for me, I get really frustrated with that sort of rhetoric that mm-hmm. we're wasting time or we're spreading ourselves too thin. So how do you respond to that when you get that criticism? Well, there's there's an old phrase that that goes back to to the days of '60s radicals. I think it was the free speech movement at Berkeley used it, which was the issue is not the issue. Mm-hmm. And I feel that a lot of criticisms of the consistent life ethic. I'm not sure if the issue being debated is the real issue. The question I always want to ask somebody who criticizes consistent life ethic advocates for diluting the pro life cause for neglecting abortion is. Well, what do you think about these other issues? Are you opposed to the death penalty? Are you opposed to war? Do you feel we need to act more to against racism and poverty? And uh, very often, I think people don't agree with us on these issues. They hold perhaps more hawkish views on war. They hold more um, fiscally conservative views on issues like poverty. Uh, they don't believe that government action to to address racial inequality is needed. But they don't want to say that. So they tend to default to, well, you're you're diluting the issue, bringing these other issues in. And frankly, if that's not really what they're objecting to, then we just need to get away from the whole question of diluting issues and talk about, well, let's talk about where we actually disagree. Yeah. Something Mm -hmm. that I, I find often is the same people who, and I mean, you know, I love everyone in the pro-life movement, sure, sure. but it's often the same people who will say that I'm diluting the issue by talking about abortion in the same breath that I talk about war and the death penalty are the people who talk about abortion and euthanasia mm-hmm. and transgender issues right. and anti-gay marriage right? Um, and don't see that as diluting the issue at right. all. Um, right. And I'm someone who, you know, I'm going to have huge disagreements with some more conservative members sure. of the movement about those issues, but... I get it. You know, you see it as 
part of Catholic social teaching or okay. you see it as part of some strain. And sure. I don't necessarily agree that it's diluting any one of your points. Sure. Um, so I do, I, I, I haven't thought about it that way, that it's not about delusion. It's about yeah the issues that you're actually talking about. Yeah. And I think, um, I think you raised a very good point because, uh, I mean, abortion is, in the actual numbers of people being killed, abortion is far and away the, the greatest threat to life just in the sheer scale. And also, of course, the, the sheer vulnerability of the people involved, children in the womb. Uh, but as you say, there are perhaps more conservative pro-lifers who will also work on issues such as assisted suicide, which is a very real threat to life, but does not kill as many people just as far as the numbers killed. Or they will work on, as you say, opposition to uh, same-sex marriage or opposition to issues related to gay rights that don't involve killing people at all. Yeah. And, uh, or, or may just work on other issues that are personally important to them, uh, whatever they may be. And they don't presumably do not perceive that as diluting the pro-life cause. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that... Uh, so one that suggests the real objection is something else, either because they don't agree with us on the substantive point or alternatively. And I think this is another issue. There's the whole notion of, well, I don't exactly know what I think about, say, the death penalty or, well, sure, I don't like it when I see these, the, you know, pictures of children in cages at the border, people being mistreated, immigrants being mistreated. But you talk about that, it's going to hurt the Republican Party. And that's going to hurt the pro-life cause. So let's just not talk about that. Yeah. Let's stay away from that. Yeah, I've been seeing that a lot, yeah. especially with the border issue. I right, think right. That any anything anti-Trump is right. anti-Roe getting overturned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and and for me, that's the that is the one of the biggest obstacles we have to overcome because people don't respond just to what you say or to the argument you make. They respond to what they they think you're saying and the argument they think you're making yeah. and if you say something like what i would think would be about as innocuous as it can get which is whatever you think about immigration surely we should make sure that children are treated humanely uh they automatically think that oh well what you want you know Demo democrats <laughs> who want to kill unborn children yeah. you want them to win is that yeah. what you're saying uh so it's a very it's a it's it's i think there's a lot of communication problems that need to be unraveled here. Yeah. I think that something that comes up with within Rehumanize a lot mm -hmm. is this discussion of how to best split up our time. Because sure. I, I don't think that there's a lot of um, accuracy to the accusation that we right. spread ourselves too thin. Because sure. in all actuality, if it wasn't for groups like Consistent Life and Rehumanize International... I wouldn't be in the pro-life movement at all. Sure, so there you go. There I'm, you doing, go. <laughs> I'm doing much more than I would have if I'd never heard of the consistent that's, life ethic. That's important outreach right there. Um, yeah, no, exactly. Uh, and I, I also think that we, but there, there is a bit of something interesting when it comes to how we split up our time. Sure. When you look at the numbers. Right. And I think that, especially for me, I think you said, you're kind of a war guy. You're focused right. on on that stuff because that's your expertise. I wouldn't say I'm a war, a war guy, guy, but you, John Whitehead, you support war. You advocate <laughs> for war. You heard it here, folks. You heard it here. Um, but but, but yes, working working against war exactly. is my primary concern. Yes, yes. Um, whereas for me, and I think a lot of people in the consistent life ethic, it's abortion. Right. Um, I see sure. that. I see that 
frequently. And I think that's because it's so personal. Of course. Um, so many of us have been affected by it. Very similar to the way that war affects so many people. Right. Um, and the military industrial complex in general. Right. And I think that I often am concerned that I, because these two issues especially are so big, right. I see myself focusing on them. Sure. You know, 98% of the time. Sure. And I don't think about the death penalty sure. or uh, the, the border crisis until, you know, CNN starts talking about it a lot. Right, right. And how do we... How do we balance that, do you yeah. think? How do we... Because I don't want to just ride the trends of the mainstream media. Yeah. Um, because, you know, during the Obama administration, we were critical of the border crisis. But, you, you know, not as much. And, sure. And I think that is partially to do with the way that the media and um, politicians address these issues. Right. That we end up following these trends and that we we may not talk as much about nuclear weapons as right. we should. Sure. Because... It doesn't get a lot of shares on Facebook because yeah. no one's talking about it right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and how do we how do we balance being relevant, right. but not allowing these important issues to sort of fall by the wayside? Yeah, that's a hard question. No, but. no, that it, it, but it's a good question. It's a really hard question, but it's a good question. I struggle with that as well. Um, I think that because uh, right because uh, you know the peace cause, the anti-war cause is so much of a concern of mine. I think it I, I, it does lead me sometimes not to pay attention to other very real crises, and that is a problem uh, because, as you say, there are only so many hours in the day. I think that the best answer I can give is that I think we need to be strategic. I think we have to go where people's attention is. Uh, so people are concerned, as they should be, with uh, the plight of immigrants especially children on the border. People are concerned with the uh, the killing and suffering that comes from police brutality, racist police brutality. Uh, people are concerned about, uh, well, I mean, those are two of the biggest issues recently. Certainly the environment concerns about environmental destruction is, is big now. And those are, those are life issues. Those are issues where we need to be involved. So I think we should to some degree, we do have to, to surf those trends. We do have to grab the opportunity and get involved because, uh, and there was a talk just here uh, at, at, at the conference we're both attending about the, the credibility problem that sometimes people who are pro-life or are consistent life can face and not seeming to care about these issues. So yeah, let's get involved. And I know Rehumanize has been involved. You've been at a lot of these rallies, yeah. these demonstrations, which we is try. fantastic. <laughs> and then... When attention is on, uh, on us for, the, for those things, let's try to bring in the other things too. Mm -hmm. Because this, this is a minor thing. It's not, I mean, it's just something I did. On Facebook, I, so I attended an, uh, an immigrants' rights rally recently. It was the Liberty, uh, Lights for Liberty mm -hmm. rally that took place across the country to protest both the treatment of children and also yeah. the, the ICE raids. We were at the Pittsburgh one. Fantastic. <laughs> Great. So I was at the Washington, D.C. one. Great turnout. Uh, very, you know, powerful speeches. I took a bunch of photos. I put them on my Facebook page. Got a ton of likes, loves. People were really enthusiastic about it. Uh, and, and you know, particularly more left-leaning people I knew. Some of them were not consistent life. Good response. Now, as it happened, the very next day, I attended uh, a vigil against targeted killing by drones. And uh, I didn't have any photos from it, but I had a story I could tell from it. And I specifically wanted to highlight, this isn't Trump, this is Obama, too. Who, who is responsible for this policy. 
I put it on my put it on my wall. And my hope was that some of all those people who saw, yeah, lights for liberty, immigrant rights, let's stand up against what Trump and, and all those people are doing, might have seen that too and thought, oh, right, there are other problems, there are other issues, and they can't all be put down just to one politician. I mean, it was a minor thing, but I think seizing those kinds of opportunities, well, people's attention are on the big issues, the, the trendy issues. Yeah. Let's try to say, yes, we're opposed to that. And also, by the way, consider this issue. Um, now, this is a more fun question. Ooh, I love those. <laughs> what do you think that the future of the consistent life ethic movement is? Where do you see it going in the next five to ten years? Yeah. Uh, in some ways, I'm very optimistic because uh, I think there is a lot of... Um, I think there is a lot of promise for, particularly for the pro-life movement, because uh, millennials, there's a lot of pro-life sentiment among millennials, most of whom, uh, as we heard today at Teresa Bakovinak's talk, break the stereotypes of pro-lifers. Uh, I think that paradoxically, because the Trump phenomenon has been such a polarizing and galvanizing thing, I think people are more willing to listen to people like us. I think the whole notion of pro-life people who are not Trump supporters interest people. And there's a kind of man bites dog story quality to that, which is why, as I'm sure you remember in 2016, Slate did a fantastic story yep. that talked yeah. about rehumanize. Yeah, pro-life feminism was very in there. Yeah, it was. And I think a big part of pro-life feminism has always been the consistent life yeah. ethic. I think they yeah, very- definitely. They are two sides of the same coin, I think. Right. It's a different form of, phrasing the idea that right. all human beings deserve to live free from violence. Yes, that's promising. I think the growing erosion of support among, well, among everybody, particularly among conservatives for the death penalty, yeah. I think there are fewer and fewer conservatives who really feel it's important. Uh, public support for the death penalty is, I believe, lower, certainly much lower than it was in its peak in the 1990s. New Hampshire just got rid of its death penalty. California did essentially a moratorium on it. I think there's promising elements there. Uh, perhaps, um, oddly enough, or maybe not so oddly, I'm a little more pessimistic about the future of the peace movement, the anti-war movement, just because I'm disappointed that we haven't found traction in recent years compared to, say, in the 2000s when the Iraq War galvanized so many people. Sadly, not me. I regret that very much. But many people were very much engaged in anti -war movement, the anti-war movement then. I'm not quite sure how we galvanize people for all their complicated reasons we've said. I do think that the tremendous interest in environmentalism and especially climate change can help us because if we link concerns about the environment to opposition to nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. which is one of the, the other huge threats to the environment, and there's so much, so many young people engaged in environmental work, that might be a root in. Yeah. I also think that yeah. um, the environment and war in general yeah. are, are very linked. Right. I think a, a year or two ago, a report came out that showed how the U.S. military is one of the biggest polluters on yeah. the planet. It's, yeah. it's right up there with ExxonMobil, <laughs> um, yeah. which is really saying something. It is, yeah. Um, and I think that, that the environment um, is an issue that is very important to young people. Right. Definitely. In a way that war has not been yet. Right, right. And I think it's because we see a huge threat mm -hmm. with climate change. Yeah, um, yeah. And as we should, and I think that it's something that 
you know, we should be talking about as much as we are. Sure. Um, but linking sort of these other issues, particularly war. I agree. And definitely nuclear weapons, yeah. I think, is is a way that hopefully young people will start to see that connection. Yeah. Um, no, I think that that's a fruitful area to look. Yeah. So so you know, broadly speaking, I'm optimistic. And I think those are some of the hopeful signs. Yeah, great. Um, now, just in the upcoming months, is there anything you're excited for? Well, there's Rehumanize our conference in October. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, is there? <laughs> have you mentioned that before in this podcast? <laughs> uh, but, uh, but beyond that, um, uh, you know, the what's going to b- dominate everybody's consciousness in the next uh, 18 months is, of course, going to be the presidential election. Uh, as I'm sure you are, I'm kind of dreading it. Mm-hmm. But but if there is an opportunity to raise awareness about the consistent life ethic or some of these issues, have people ask questions at town hall meetings, at debates, uh, that that would be good. There's a, actually, I'm going to mention this. There's, I, If I'm not mistaken, there's a CNN poll they're conducting about what questions do you want to hear asked in presidential debates. Uh, Maybe specifically in relation to the the, um, the the Democratic debate that's coming up next week, but it may be more broad than that. I mean, when those things come up, find them, put put consistent life theme questions there at, at, you know, Democratic debates, Republican debates. Ask, well, how are, you know, what are you going to do to, re- to abolish nuclear weapons? Just ask the Democratic candidates that or... Uh, um, I guess there won't be any Republican debates, but uh, but but yeah, certainly if there are town hall meetings or other public forums for talking about these issues, that could be a useful place to bring up the ethic. Great. Um, and finally, where can people go to learn more about Consistent Life Network? <laughs> well, I'm so glad you asked. You can go to www.consistentlifenetwork.org. Uh, we also are on Facebook. You can just search for Consistent Life and you'll find us there. And, uh, and yeah, uh, we have, as I said, look, look for a new blog post every Tuesday. We have a weekly e-newsletter that you can, you can subscribe to, but I know we all get such email. You can just look at it directly on our website, find out about consistent life news events, happenings. Uh, and yeah, please get in touch with us. Great. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, Herb. Lovely to speak. I it was will, lovely. I'm excited to see you in October for the Rehumanized Conference, <laughs> where you will be speaking. On on uh, nuclear weapons, yeah. the need to abolish nuclear weapons. Are you speaking, Herb? I am speaking. On? I am speaking on, I have two. I okay. am speaking on bad words, uh, rehumanizing mm-hmm. okay. rhetoric, um, as well as a talk that I'm still developing that mm-hmm. I'm really excited about that is essentially embryonic rights Mm. outside of the abortion issue. Oh, very um, interesting. Which I'm really excited to do the research to really get that started. Definitely, definitely. Well, great. Come and see us, folks. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to episode 6 of the Rehumanize podcast. To learn more, check out rehumanizeintl.org or follow us on social media at rehumanizeintl.